Good morning. morning. 21 years ago this morning at 8.46 a.m., I was sitting in my cubicle at Citigroup training a brand new employee. It was their second day on the job. I was training them in doing some of the things that we did in our department. And we started hearing some murmurings coming down the hall, and eventually they reached us. And somebody was reporting that a small aircraft had crashed into the World Trade Center in New York City. Quickly, more murmurings, more news, more details started coming down the hall. It wasn't a small aircraft, it was a commercial airliner, and they were still trying to figure out what had happened. Was it the radar system? Did they lose control? What had happened with this plane? And at 9.03, a second plane had hit the other tower of the World Trade Center. And by then, all of us were standing around radios, sitting around TVs, watching things unfold almost in real time. And 34 minutes later, we heard the news that another plane had flown into the Pentagon in Washington, DC. A little bit later, another one had fallen into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Almost everyone here who is 25 years of age or older remembers almost exactly where they were remembers almost exactly what they were doing when they heard the news of this attack. And it was unequivocally an evil attack. They were carried out by men who were persuaded by evil. And they were persuaded that evil was good and good was evil. And they carried out these attacks. As we spend time remembering the lives lost and praying for healing for the families and the friends of the victims today, and we will, uh, most of us, do that at some point or another if we haven't already, let us also remember the family and friends of the men who perpetrated this evil. Let us remember that they were humans born in sin, just like us. Let us remember that the God of love and grace, whom we'll speak of today, also loved them and loves their families and their friends just like he loves us. And let us remember that God's desire is that his family and his friends might encounter him. And by encountering him, that they might choose the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, just like many of us have. Let us remember those people today as we continue always to remember those who lost their lives in this evil tragedy. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we remember today the almost 3,000 lives that were lost on this morning 21 years ago. Father, we stared into the face of evil on that day. But Father, we know that that evil did not come from within men. It came from your enemy, Satan. We know that these men were persuaded that evil was good. And while we know that they are responsible for carrying out that evil, we must always remember 
that we were born into the same sin state as they were. And Father, we are so grateful that you pursued us. And Father, we are grateful that you have shown us grace, that you have shown us mercy, and that you have offered the free gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might turn from evil, so that we might be saved, so that we might live in a relationship with you. Father, for all the billions of people around the world who don't know you, we pray for them today. Regardless of country, regardless of religion or no religion, Father, we know that you have no desire that they should die, but they should all see your face, encounter your grace and your love, and come to faith in Jesus Christ. We pray for those people today. We pray for this service. We pray for this message. I ask that you would speak through me. May my words be pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning and for the next nine weeks, we're going to be exploring this idea of uh, God's love and grace alongside of some other things that we're going to look at. We're going to look at what we call the core values of the Brethren in Christ Church. I've had people come to me uh, various times, people in, the, in this building, people outside, and say, well, what do the Brethren in Christ believe? And of course, I could point them to a website and say, well, click here and you can read through all of this and you can see what we believe. But sometimes it's good to actually examine those things, to examine what, it, what is it that, that makes the Brethren in Christ Church the Brethren in Christ Church. Many of us are members here. Some of us probably forget uh, what the core values of the Brethren in Christ Church are. Um, but in your bulletins uh, today, and we'll also have them in bulletins next week for people who aren't here today, we placed a flyer with the 10 core values uh, and a very, very brief explanation of each. But as members or congregants of the Brethren in Christ Church, again, I think it's a good idea to be familiar with what our denomination believes. What do we value? What are the things that are most important to us? Because if we know the things that are most important to us, then we can focus our faith, we can focus our actions, we can focus the things that we do outside of the church in order to shine Christ's light on a broken world. So many churches share a statement of faith. Ours is on our website, BICUS.org. Uh, you can go and you can read uh, what is called the Manual of Doctrine and Government. Uh, it is a book about yay thick. It's not very long. But it does show um, our basic beliefs, our basic, our, our, our basic uh, doctrine, our statement of faith. Some churches just go with the Apostles' Creed and say, this is it. This is, this is what we believe. And we have this document out here as well. And the manual lays out in, in great detail the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the nature of God, the nature of sin, God's plan for salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, um, and our role as members of uh, both the Brethren in Christ Church and as members of Christ's Church Universal. And the 10 core values basically encapsulate the doctrine as we see it in the Manual of Doctrine and Government. You can also read uh, about the 10 cores in a much, much more detail if you would like. 
uh, in a book called Focusing Our Faith, which is available in our church library. How many of you knew we had a church library? Some people did, some people don't. We do have a church library. It's right next door to the uh, Sunday school room where the adult Sunday school meets. Right next door to there is, the, uh, is our library. Um, Jody Beeman is our librarian, so you can talk to her if you're looking for something. But we have this book in the library, and in the book, 10 Brethren in Christ Pastors and Leaders um, share essays on each of these core values and how the Bible supports these values and what we believe. And before we dive into uh, the first one today, let's take a look at all 10, and we'll just kind of read down through this list, and you can read uh, with me on the list. The first value, experiencing God's love and grace. We value the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Number two is believing the Bible. We value the Bible as God's authoritative word. We study it together and we build our lives on its truths. Number three is worshiping God. We value heartfelt worship that is God-honoring, spirit-directed, and life-changing. Number four, following Jesus, we value wholehearted obedience to Christ Jesus through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Value five is belonging to the community of faith. We value integrity in relationships. We value mutual accountability in an atmosphere of grace, love, and acceptance. Value number six, witnessing to the world. We value an active and loving witness for Christ to all people. Value seven, serving compassionately. We value serving others at their point of need, following the example of Jesus Christ. Value eight, pursuing peace. We value all human life and promote forgiveness, understanding, reconciliation, and nonviolent resolution of conflict. Value nine, living simply. We value uncluttered lives which free us to boldly love, give generously, and serve joyfully. And value 10 reads, relying on God. We confess our dependence on God for everything and seek to deepen our intimacy with him by living prayerfully. And I encourage you, keep those, uh, keep those flyers. Bring them with you on Sunday mornings because over the next several weeks, we're going we're gonna to kind of dive into uh, each of these core values and what they mean and see where in the Bible these values are supported. So today we're going to talk about the first value on the list, experiencing God's love and grace. And that means that we value the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the Spirit, just like it reads on your paper. In fact, we as believers, we value this the most, or at least we should, value Christ's gift of salvation and the Holy Spirit's power to transform us. And God's love is demonstrated. If you have read through your Bible, or if you have read even part of your Bible, God's love is demonstrated in every passage, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. And I sometimes have people come up and ask me, they ask me, what's the most important verse or most important passage in the Bible? And uh, some people are smiling because they know they've heard this answer before. But... What's the most important verse in the Bible? And of course, my first response is that they're all important because they were all inspired by God and written down by men who were obedient to God. But some people might point to Romans 3.11, known as righteous, no, not one. 
Some people might point to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we don't understand this, then we don't understand who God is. For others, it's Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Very important that we understand that. And these are all important verses, and we must understand these realities if we are going to come to know our need for Jesus Christ, if we're going to come to know our need to be saved from our sinful lives. But when I'm asked this question, what's the most important verse in the Bible, I often point to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then I'll go a step further. I'll actually tell them that the, the first four words of this verse are the most important four words in the Bible. In the beginning, God. Psalm 90, verse 2 proclaims, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting. This means that God always has been, He is right at this very second, and He will be for all of eternity. Before anything was created, God is. According to one sociological study, there are about 450 to 500 million people on earth in the entire world who call themselves positive atheists or agnostics. Positive atheist is a person who actually explicitly says, I don't believe there is a God. This is different from negative atheists who believe there's no God but don't actually come out and say it. And we can't count them because they don't come out and say it. But 450 to 500 million positive atheists or agnostics, agnostics say they don't have enough evidence to tell if there's a God or not. So they, we call them the doubters or the questioners. That's 7% of the population of the world come out and say, there is no God, or I can't be sure that there is a God. And we know that there are hundreds of millions of others who don't say that for whatever reason. In the United States alone, 30% describe themselves as atheist or agnostic or not religiously affiliated. They don't really believe much of anything. In the beginning, God means nothing to 7% of the world's population, to up to 30% of the population of the United States. And until and unless a person comes to know this primary reality, that God was and is and always will be, nothing else in the Bible can have any meaning to it's just a book full of stories. And if a person doesn't understand that God is, they will not be able to comprehend the end of the verse Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we believe that God is, if we believe that God is who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture, 
and throughout history and throughout nature, then we believe that God created everything. If we're a Christian, we have grown up knowing, or when we came to Christ, we have started our lives knowing that God created everything, the heavens and the earth. And it is so sad to me to watch so many churches split and so many Christians fight with each other over how he did it and how long it took him. If we interpret if we interpret the Hebrew in Genesis in one way, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them in six days, in 144 hours. And that's what our English translation tells us. There was evening, there was morning, the first day, the second day, all the way up to the sixth day, and on the seventh day, God rested. This is what we read in our English translation. The Hebrew word for day is yom. You might have heard of a, a holiday called Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Yom means day. But Yom also means period of time. And Yom also means lifetime. And it also means daylight. We have to read the context to know what Yom might mean when it says the evening and the morning were the first day. And some of these other translations, some people look at this and they say, well, that means maybe God didn't do it in 144 hours. Maybe he did it in 144 years or 144 million years. Some people look at Genesis 1, uh, 3, where it says God said, let there be light. And they translate that to mean the Big Bang, which means that God started this whole process 13.4 billion years ago. And I look and I hear all of these arguments and all of these people saying all of these things. And I say, okay, sure. Depending on your reading, we can interpret it that way. But then I ask them some questions. Do you believe that it is possible that God could create the world in 144 hours? Is it possible? Right? I'm talking to Christians here. Is it possible that God created the, world, or the universe in 144 hours? Most of them say, well, sure. Is it possible that God created the universe in 13.4 billion years? Well, yeah, sure. Is it possible that God could be ready and go, and everything is there in a nanosecond? Yes. And I'm not saying that it's not important to know or try to understand what the Bible is telling us. What do these verses mean? What I'm telling you is we don't split churches because of it. We don't fight other Christians because of it. Because the truth in Genesis 1-1 is that God created the heavens and the earth. And I could have nothing else in Genesis 1. I don't have... I, 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 it could be torn out of my Bible. It could never have been printed. And I still would be convinced of the fact that God created everything. If a person doesn't believe that God is, and a person doesn't believe that he created the heavens and the earth, 
They're not going to care whether he did it in a nanosecond or 13.4 billion years or anything in between. But we fight. And the world sees us fighting over these things. Because we feel it's more important for somebody to believe that God did it in this period of time or this period of time rather than believing that God is. Rather than believing that God created everything. And that's sad to me. Why is this understanding crucial? Why is it crucial to understand that God created the heavens and the earth? Why is it crucial for somebody else who might not know God yet to come to the knowledge and the understanding that God created the heavens and the earth? Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. We know that God created the heavens because they declare his glory. They declare his holiness, his majesty, his splendor, his magnificence. How many of you remember from school the song America the Beautiful? And in America the Beautiful, one of the, one of the lyrics mentions the purple mountains majesty across the fruited plain. Well, in 2019, uh, my family and I had the pleasure of taking a three-week uh, cross-country road trip. We, came, we went from Dillsburg all the way out to San Francisco, down to L.A., and then back again through the south. And we had the opportunity several times to see the Purple Mountains' majesty. And we got to see a whole lot of other majestic things. We saw the Rocky Mountains. Anybody ever seen the Rocky Mountains, like, for real? I mean, we were really far away, and they still looked magnificent. You were not going to say, oh, they're the Rocky Hills. They were beautiful. We stopped at the Grand Canyon about two-thirds of the way through our trip as we had started rounding third and heading for home, so to speak about two weeks or so in, and we stopped there, and we, we went, and we kind of saw it during the daytime, and yeah, it's a hole in the ground, you know. Um, <laughs> it's a big hole, but it, 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 it didn't hold as much majesty for me. Maybe it did for, for my boys or for my wife, and I just kind of looked at it, and I was like, yeah, this is what happens. You know, we have big holes in the ground and all of this, but about nine o'clock at night, we decided to drive to one of the remote pull-offs. They have all these pull-offs all the way around the canyon. And we stopped at one of these remote pull-offs and we turned off all our lights. And there were no lights on anywhere, no artificial light. And we just waited. Got there around dusk and we waited. And we started seeing as it got darker and darker, stars appearing in the sky. And the more we watched and the more we waited, more and more stars. And I tell you, I believe I could see a million stars in that sky. And when you've seen a million stars across this vast sky, I'm telling you, for me, I saw the glory of God. It was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. If we deny God as the creator of all, we deny his glory. 
And if we deny His glory as we look at the rest of His creation, the mountains and the trees and the stars and the oceans, if we deny His glory in those things, we will never, ever comprehend the glory of God that shines through human beings who have accepted His free gift of salvation. We will never comprehend that we carry His glory. Think about that for just a second. You carry, if you have accepted Christ's gift of salvation, you carry the glory of a million stars in the sky. You carry the glory of those purple mountains' majesty, of those deep oceans and those rivers and those lakes and all of the beautiful animals that we see. If you have accepted that free gift, you carry that glory. Can you comprehend that? The Bible says, yes, you should be able to. The reason that God created the heavens and the earth was to declare His glory. And the reason that He created human beings was to do the same thing. There's a Greek bishop Irenaeus of Smyrna lived in the latter part of the second century, played a large role in spreading the gospel through uh, the south of what is now modern-day France. And he's also considered the last known living connection to Jesus' apostles because he, uh, was, he sat under the preaching of Polycarp, who had heard the preaching of the apostle John. So he was the last known living person back then. And Irenaeus once said, the glory of God is a living human being. Now he didn't mean just a living human being. Irenaeus meant that the glory of God is what God does for the fallen human being. The being who has been lost and ruined and dead in sin. And we see these truths reflected in those passages we talked about before. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot have the glory of God in us if we have not accepted Jesus Christ and His free gift of salvation. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God literally means that God's glory is not in us. Because we are dead in our sin. And it's only through God's grace that we even have a chance to see His glory, to enter into His loving presence. Grace can be explained very simply. Most of us have heard this very easy definition of grace that says grace is getting what we don't deserve. And I like that definition. It's concise. It's short. Most people can understand what it means. But what this really means is that as sin-filled humans, we deserve death. We are born deserving death, just as we heard in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Wages are what we have earned. Humanity through sin has earned death. But then Paul gives us the good news. But the free gift of God 
is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Christ, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, he resurrects us. We who are dead in sin when we accept God's free gift of Christ's sacrifice. He brings us back to life. And we don't deserve it. This is something that God gives us through his grace, and he gives it to us through his grace because he loves. He loves you. Even if you are still dead in sin, God loves you. He loves you so much that He gave His Son so that you could have the opportunity to not be dead anymore. So that you could live. When people come to Christ, when we accept that free gift, we see a vision of the glory of God and that vision is poured into us through the Holy Spirit. God's glory can then be seen in this newly reborn person. And God's glory can be seen by other people. People who are still dead in sin. They should be able to see the glory of God in us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's up to us to accept God's grace or to not. And it's not because God is looking to send people to hell. And I hear this so many times. Well, if God loves everybody so much, why would he send them to hell? Let me correct some thinking here. God does not want to send anyone to hell. When we're born, we're in hell already. We have a hard time facing that realization when we look at a newborn baby, though, don't we? And we say, well, how could this newborn baby be destined for hell. Newborn baby is destined for hell because he was born in sin. He was born into this death. And when we reach an age where we have the ability to make the decision for Jesus Christ to accept his free gift, we become responsible for that decision. Earlier we said that experiencing God's love and grace means the free gift of salvation and the transforming power of the Spirit. If you are sitting here and you are listening to me, that means that you are comprehending the words that are coming out of my mouth. Maybe not understanding, maybe not necessarily getting everything, but you know the words that I'm speaking. God wants you. I can't put it any simpler than that. God wants you. He wants your neighbor. He wants your coworker that annoys you every single day. He wants the families of 19 men who flew airplanes into various places in the United States 21 years ago today. 
God wants us. And if you're sitting here and you've come to that realization that God wants you and you've come to that realization that God's gift of salvation is the only way to get to God and you have accepted that free gift, you get to experience the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. When we say transforming power, so what does that mean? It means we're being transformed. It means that when God finds us, when we make that decision, God finds us exactly where we are. We don't have to change anything before we make a decision to accept God's free gift of salvation. And a lot of people think they do. Well, I got to stop smoking and I got to stop drinking and I got to stop running around and I got to stop doing all these things before I come to Jesus Christ. And that's not true. You come to faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is going to transform you so that you're not going to be drinking and you're not going to be running around and you're not going to be doing all of those things. God finds us where we are, but he does not expect that we are going to stay there. God doesn't expect we're going to keep going and doing the same old things that we used to do if we truly have accepted God's free gift of salvation. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Paul gives us an excellent description of what death of the Spirit and life of the Spirit looks like. This is in Galatians chapter 5. Some of you are familiar with this passage. In this chapter, he's encouraging his readers to walk in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, don't walk in sin anymore. You're Christians now. Walk in the Holy Spirit. And he shows them what he means. In Galatians 5, 19 to 21, he writes, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. We're not jealous, are we? Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. The list goes on and on. But even though the list goes on and on, Paul then ends that, that list with, and things like these. This is not an exhaustive list, folks. This is what I've thought of off the top of my head. These are the things that we do when we're dead in sin. Let me tell you what life looks like when we're alive in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When the Holy Spirit gives us the power to transform into someone in whom God's glory shines, this is the result. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, and all of those things. If we were do, and if we were to do a study to contrast those two lists, we could see the exact opposite things going on in these two lists. What's the opposite of love? Hate, jealousy, enmity, strife. What's the opposite of joy? What's the opposite of peace? What's the opposite of patience? We can see all of those things. We were none of those things when we were dead in Christ or when we were dead in spirit. Now we see those things because we have accepted God's free gift because the spirit is transforming us and he is turning us into these people who have love, joy, peace, patience, and those other fruits of the Spirit. 
And many of us here in the room this morning watching the video, we've experienced God's love and God's grace. We've experienced it. We've begun the lifelong striving to live our lives to show the glory of God through love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Some of us here, or some of us watching the video, have not made that choice. And you can't say it's because you haven't heard about it. But we haven't made that choice. Some, some have not made that choice to accept this gift of salvation. And if that's you, maybe you believe just that God doesn't exist. Maybe you believe the whole universe happened by chance. No one created it, just carbon atoms colliding and repelling each other until we get dogs and cows and trees and brains. Maybe you think you can't tell one way or another. I don't really know if there's a God. The Bible says nature declares God's glory. Nature lets us know that God is there. If you have a doubt about whether God is there, drive out to an open field where there's no artificial light and lay on the ground and look up at the sky. So far as we know, there are no other intelligent lives in the universe. Just us. You know how big the universe is? Why would God create all of that other stuff? Because He wants to show His glory. He wants to show us who He is. Morning Hour Chapel, we're sitting here today. Some of you have accepted Christ's free gift. The most important thing we can do now is show God's glory to people. Show them the way that we live. Show them the things that God has done for us. Jesus Christ calls us to be witnesses. And when He calls us to be witnesses, what that means is that we testify to the good that Christ brings to us when we accept his free gift of salvation. That's what it means. And I pray this morning that we've seen a glimpse of what it means to understand God's love and God's grace. That we've come to understand that there's nothing that we can do ever possibly to deserve God's grace and forgiveness. But he gives it to us anyway because he loves us. And I pray even more that those who have not yet experienced God's love and God's grace might experience it. Through you and through me and through every Christian who lives a life that's pleasing to God. And if you are here this morning and you are beginning to feel that love, you're beginning to feel that grace, but you've not accepted his free gift of salvation yet, we want to talk to you. If not this morning, then very, very soon. 
We want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. Our deacons, they'll talk to you. Other Christians in this room, they'll talk to you. Whoever you feel comfortable with, come and talk to us. Let us help you. Let us help lead you to who God is. The Holy Spirit's going to do the actual work. We're just going to kind of point a couple of things out. If you're sitting here watching and you do make or have made since the beginning of this service this morning a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we want to talk to you too. We want to talk about what the Bible says about the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. We want to talk to you about how we go from dead to alive and what our lives should look like as we follow Jesus Christ. We want to talk to you too. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for creating this immense universe to show your glory. We thank you for creating us humans we look at ourselves and we feel so insignificant compared to the entire universe, to all of creation. But Father, don't let us think that way. Father, if we have accepted your grace, if we have accepted your love, if we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we know that we are filled with the glory of you. The glory that shows in all of your creation. Father, if we're here today and we have accepted this free gift, give us the strength, give us the power, give us the courage to share it, to testify for Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for people who have not yet made that decision. Let the Holy Spirit move through them whether it be through my words, which I pray are your words, or whether it be through the lives of, of the people here, the people in their lives who've followed Jesus Christ. Make it our desire. Make it the same as your desire that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. And let us live our lives as much as possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. <sighs> to make that a reality. Let us show your glory so that others may share in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven.
The light that is in you is the glory of God. Don't hide it. Let it shine brightly so that the world can see him, so that the world can come to him. God bless you this morning.